arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I picture myself sitting down in a saloon somewhere, in, uh, perhaps in Arizona in 1882, and sitting back and talking about some of the context of this book. I found a vacant time frame in the spring of 1882 for Johnny Ringo, which gave me latitude to construct the fictional story of stolen silver. Ringo's movement around Tombstone was historically verified, so the book moves in and out of that history at that time. Also, the proximity to the shootout at the OK Corral on October 26, 1881 was less than a year prior to the end of the book. Like the gunfighters of the Old West, the OK Corral has been glamorized, which is fine for legends and entertainment. Reality is more violent. Revenge via violence is all around. I didn't want to use the Earp Brothers and Doc Holliday to bolster a storyline. Rather, as with Rheingold slash Ringo, I did want the otherwise named people to take on the attributes of the infamous characters around Tombstone, Arizona. And then Pam Grayson follows Johnny South to escape the U.S. Army and Jake McBride. The good thing about reading a book or watching a movie is that we're all living vicariously, which again is great. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. But you know the reality. So get aboard and return to the beginning of the summer of 1882. When you're dead, you're dead. In and around the Arizona Territory. Chapter 24, Pinata Mining Camps, San Pedro River Valley, Arizona Territory, July 8, 1882, 1.16 p.m. The dusty stagecoach rumbled along the undulating, gritty trail to the river valley. Six towns in this area had established silver ore stamping and processing centers. The river allowed them to power and run the machinery. Smelting smokestacks and mule trains dotted the dirt hills just before the mountains. A wave of sand and haze, heated by the glaring July sun, partially hid the parched land and the more distant rock-chunk hills. Jake's Remington and saddlebags lay across his lap. By now, Elby would have brought Menowa back to Brinson. A mustached man in a blue shirt and flattened brown hat sat next to him up top. He did not say much, other than that he was hired to secure the Wells Fargo box. Jake extended his hand as they moved forward. By the way, I'm uh, Jake McBride. Where are you from, Marshal? Brinson, uh, Nevada. I came down here by stage. Rufus Johnson. What brings you down here, Marshal? I'm looking for a man who's a murderer and a thief. Johnson's wrinkled face deepened as he slowly smiled. <laughs> Could be anyone down here. I was told Arizona Territory is a... Uh, dangerous place. You was told right. Got a name for your wanted man? Johnson panned the jagged hills again. John Rheingold. Johnson shook his head. No Rheingold down here, McBride. How about Josh Gordon? Jake felt the cold silver of the watch in his pocket. Nope. What did he do? I got one of my oldest friends buried at Bancor Pass. Three other of my men are dead, and every one that was on his side. Is there a uh, reward out for this man? Should be by now, maybe a sketch. 
tried to steal silver bars originating down here. Well, that doesn't mean he's from here, does it? He lit a stogie and handed one to Jake. Jake lit the stogie. What did he look like? Jake cleared his throat in the dust. Tall, tall, light brown hair, mustache, blue eyes. He was a gambler. Johnson said nothing again, but kept the stogie in the corner of his mouth. He squinted in the afternoon sun. A few minutes later, they neared the buildings and smokestacks ahead. Like I said, he may not be from here if he's a gambler. There's plenty of gambling in Rhyolite City. Jake stared into his eyes. You know him, Johnson? Don't know no Gordon, don't know no Rheingold. Grand Central Mill, Millville, Emory City, Fairbank, Charleston, and Contention were all in the San Pedro River. Looking for Rheingold in those towns could take time. He thought Johnson might be holding something back. You know him by another name. No, sir, I don't. But take off that badge. Cowboys down here don't like lawmen. They shoot him dead. He had other men working for him, Dooley, and a man named McAllister, and another one named Glidden. Sometimes it's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Then you know these men. I heard the names, but a part of your cowboys? I ain't a part of the cowboys round here. I got a job to do, Marshal, and that's to guard the Wells Fargo box. Jake nodded and held his rifle as they rolled forward over the bouncy trail. The stifling air irritated his throat and lungs. High-pitched white tents led up the hill to a series of buildings near the mountains. Mules and horses moved continuously, along with scruffy-looking miners on the trail below. Is that where they make them silver bars? They smelted and the bars are loaded on the stage and picked up by a train near Tucson. That's my understanding. Where did, uh, where did all this with Rheingold happen? asked Johnson as the stage driver slowed the horses. Outside Brenton, we chased him in the Silver North. The silver was recovered, but he got away. You don't have any robberies around here? March we did. Two men shot dead. The Bristol stage. How much did they get? Nothing. Two men were killed. Paul Roberts was right up top. He shot his way out of the holdup. They catch the bandits? No, but they were part of the cowboys. I'm sure of that. Keep talking about cowboys, said Jake. Hell, the wild ones, McBride, the desperados. That's where you're going to find your man. Trust me, but they're a tight bunch, they are. Sheriff Belfry couldn't catch them. Where are these cowboys, in the saloons? Sometimes, and sometimes in Raleigh, New Mexico. They're a tough bunch, Marshal. Make sure you don't get yourself killed. This man killed my friends. When you're out for justice, you don't worry about dying. Johnson extended his callous hand. Well, good luck, Marshal. Check the camp around here and be careful what you say about the cowboys. If your man was down here, maybe somebody heard him. I'll talk to Mayor Blum and Deputy Sheriff Kern when I get back to Rhyolite City. See if they recognize your description. Jake climbed off the stage and with his saddlebags over his shoulder, carried his rifle by his side. He walked through the grit near the mule trains. Nothing had been loaded for shipment. The mules were transporting raw ore. Jake did not expect to see Rheingold lingering about, but as he looked at the dirty faces of these hard-working men, he realized that someone here must have seen him, or better yet, someone might have talked to him. 
Give him mine anything? Asked the smudge-faced little guy down the mine shaft. Jake could not figure out why the cooler air inside the shaft reeked of some foul smell. I ain't never mind nothing. Well, you gotta worry about the cave-ins, mister. What about when the air runs out? We're the ones who bring out the rocks. Jake looked down the carved shaft, and the car is filled with rough rock connected to half-fed mules. I ain't here to mine. I'm looking for a man named John Rheingold. Nope. Don't know him. Also goes by the name of Josh Gord. Why you looking for him? Jake stepped around one of the carts, because he killed a lot of people. The man laughed, showing his missing teeth. Come on, mister. You know how many men have been gunned down around here? Even in Rylite City, they got marshals all around. Even marshals get gunned down, mister. A tall guy with a hawk nose had a sidearm pointed at Jake. You don't work here. No, sir. I'm a marshal looking for a murderer. What does this man look like? Asked the miner as he studied Jake. Tall, said Jake. Light brown hair, mustache, and blue eyes. But I don't need you in here, said the tall guy. Come on outside. Jake started forward, but then he turned. Where can I get something to eat? Uh, down the hill, you'll smell it. As Jake nodded, bullets tore into the rock. Maybe someone had seen his badge before he removed it. Four or five short pops sounded outside as they dived behind the mining cart. Jake drew his gun and peered over the top of the cart. The tall guy fired shots toward the entrance. Several of the miners scurried back into the shaft. Them are rifle shots, said Jake, holding back his fire until he saw something. I guess somebody wants you dead. Jake pushed the cart forward toward the entrance. What are you doing? Trying to get out of here and not be target practice for someone outside. Jake reached the entrance. Outside, men had scattered, but the shooting had stopped. Maybe it's your man shooting at you. Not likely. You wouldn't have missed. The tall guy didn't seem to mind the food. They ate continuously since they sat down on the bench. Jake scooped the strange-tasting potatoes off a metal plate on the long table. His Remington leaned against the bench. This food is filled with spices. Work in the mines and that's what you eat. Don't ask me why. Well, I won't. Tall man laughed and extended his hand. Michael Laughlin. Jake McBride. Where you from, Jake? I'm from Ohio, but Brinson, Nevada is where I'm marshal. He removed the silver watch from his side pocket and opened it. Owned by the man I'm after, Josh Gordon. What did your guy do? Think he was down here and figured out that smelted ore, once it's in bars, was brought by stage to Tucson. See, he got somebody to blow up the tracks and wreck the train, the 924, outside of Brinson. Then they got off with the silver. Hell, the railroad must be involved if this missing silver and he wrecked the train? They are involved, and we got the silver back, Mike. So you're down here for a reward? Don't care about no reward, brother. Josh Gordon, or whoever the hell he is, killed my friends. O'Laughlin put his hand on his gun. Somebody don't want you down here, Jake. Looks that way. I'm heading into Rylite City tonight, gonna drink and gamble. Why don't you come along with me? We'll see if we can locate this Gordon. That's where I'm headed next. You'll have to check your gun outside of town. Probably a good idea. <laughs> Not if someone's shooting at you. Or that son of a bitch Hiram Kern tries to buffalo you. Either Marshal, 
Deputy Marshal. What you do is when he holds his gun with the blunt end out, you need to get his forearm. Don't let him pistol whip you. Kick him if you can before he gets the advantage. That's Hiram's specialty. He's knocked more men on their asses. Sometimes it's not a bad thing if you need to do it. Jake grimaced as he swallowed the heavy, spicy food. Sure hope there's better food in Rylite City. Bullets tore through the tent, and faint shots sounded outside. Jake grabbed his rifle and leaped under the table. He looked toward the hills. Men fired rifles from camp as bullets shredded the tent. Someone moved behind the rock up on the hill. Up on that hill is where he is. I'm going to get that son of a bitch. Come on, out the back of the tent, Jake, shouted O'Loughlin. Jake scrambled on his belly under the adjacent table. O'Loughlin lifted the tent flap and Jake stuck the Remington barrel outside. The miners exchanged shots with the shooter behind the rocks up the hill. Jake leaned around the tent but kept the gun pointed at the rocks. God damn him! This way, Jake, with my men! Come on! Jake crouched down and circled down, a, down the hill. The miners were behind loose boulders and gravel. Hey, Mike, there's some fool up there trying to kill us. I know that, Eddie, I know that. More shots skipped down the valley, but this time the bullets splintered the rocks near O'Loughlin and Jake. Jake aimed the Remington where he last saw the smoke puff. He fired three quick shots and then ducked behind the larger red boulder. The dark hat of an indefinite figure passed along the rocks. Up there! Halfway on the outer ledge where the rock jets out. Shoot the bastard. He's got damn good cover. Then we just go up there and kill him dead, said Jake. He fired his rifle again. And then the miners started shooting. He can circle around the upper trail over the mine where they let the air out, said O'Loughlin. One bullet hit the rock near Jake's right ear. Well, let's do it. O'Loughlin waved his men back to the smooth boulders. You men, go down by the smelting house. Let's get this sniping son of a bitch. In the afternoon haze, a party of a dozen men climbed the back of the hill, off the trail, along the extended ridge toward the mine. The rifle shots had stopped a few minutes back. Jake had his finger on the Remington's trigger as he led the others over the top. Now they had a view of additional smelting houses, smokestacks, and the valley north to Rhyolite City. Over there! shouted one of the miners. A shadowy form galloped over the rolling hills to the east. The miners let loose a barrage of bullets toward the rider. Jake aimed, but he knew the rider was too far away. Hold your damn fire! Tough luck, Marshal, said O'Loughlin. Jake set his Remington against the rocks and lit a stogie. The rider disappeared in the haze that had settled over the dry plains to the north. He stared and exhaled the stogie smoke. This ain't over yet, brother. It ain't over. Chapter 25 The Oriental Saloon, Rhyolite City, Arizona Territory, July 8, 1882, 9.45 p.m. O'Loughlin carried two mugs of beer over to the table. Jake had gambled more than he drank at the noisy Oriental Saloon. He checked his gun before he entered town. In his hand he held three-eighths as the cold, steely eyes of the man they called Max Soledad followed his hand movements. Soledad had already intimated that Jake had asked too many questions about John Rangel. He kept clearing his lungs. Then he accused Jake of being an out-of-towner, and, and if he really was a marshal, he was out of his area of jurisdiction. 
He repeatedly called Jake stranger. I'm going to raise another 50, said Jake, moving the coins to the center of the green felt table. He constantly checked the saloon for any sign of Rheingold. You acquired those cards neatly, stranger. Just like any other hand, brother. Soledad spread his hand on the red tablecloth, then coughed long enough to stop the game. We don't take kindly to cheating here in this town. Jake pushed his teeth together. I ain't never cheated in my life. You calling me a liar, stranger? He's not calling you a liar, Mac, said O'Laughlin. You stay out of this and mind your own business, Mike. Soledad stood, revealing a coach gun leaning securely against the side support. I'm back here from Colorado, and you know why? Hey, I'm not asking for any trouble, Mac. We just had a lawman shot and others killed. The marshal's brother was shot dead in March. How do I know you're not here to kill Hiram Kern? Jake stood and walked around the table. He squared his boot in front of Soledad. You don't know that. I got friends in the ground too, Mac. Friends killed by John Rheingold and his pals Dooley, Glidden, and McAllister. Jake looked into his dark eyes. Mac never made a move for the coach gun and seemed to have a certain respect for Jake's movement. Sit down, friend. Let's finish our game, said Soledad as he began another protracted period of coughing. The game went on for another hour with not much said. Soledad disappeared with his gun after a few drinks at the bar. O'Laughlin brought Jake to a table in the corner. Soledad is a killer, Jake, a damn killer. I've faced killers before, but I tell you, Mike, Soledad knows something about Rheingold. I wouldn't push Mac Soledad. The man has no conscience. He'd kill a man and then finish his supper without batting an eye. Not my problem, brother. I'm here for Rheingold. Jake settled into his wallpapered room at the Grande Pueblo after midnight. O'Laughlin followed him upstairs for one more game of poker and drink. Jake leaned back in the wooden chair and threw down his cards. Two threes. You cheating, Mike? Three queenies, Jake. Three queenies. Don't let Mac Soledad know you're cheating, Mike, he said as he stood. Then he removed another stogie from his saddlebag and went over to the window. A few lights blazed near the Oriental Saloon down the street. I think Rheingold is in this town. Sometimes a man just knows things. And I'm thinking somebody's tipping him off, letting him know I'm here. Jake turned when he heard someone on the back stairs. O'Laughlin approached the door. A sharp knock echoed around the room. At the second knock, he waved O'Laughlin away from the door. Yeah, Marshal McBride? Asked the man on the other side. Who's asking? Message from Marshal Kern. Jake glanced at O'Laughlin. Well, what's the message? Messages for you to pick up your gun and get out of town. Jake walked across the room and looked at O'Laughlin. You tell him. I got his message. Well, something ain't right. They don't want you down here. Jake returned to the window. Till I hear from the marshal himself, I ain't going nowhere. Jake returned to the table and sat down. He leaned forward to gather the cards. Bullet whizzed by his head and into the plaster wall. He pushed the table over him and O'Laughlin careened to the floor. More bullets punctured the wall. A couple of upper window panes shattered. He blew out the old wick flame and reached for his gun. Ah, it has to be solid, Ed, said O'Laughlin. You shouldn't have stood up to him. Jake crawled out the window and leaned to the edge. I don't have my guns. Maybe I should leave town, Jake. The stogie smoke rose in the dim blue light. No, not yet. 
If we walk out of this room, they'll gun us down. A small crowd had gathered in front of the Oriental several hundred feet away. Men ran toward a three-story building across the street. More men cleared the crowd and entered the building. Then the stairwall shook. Someone moved quickly up the stairs. Jake motioned toward the window. He grabbed his saddlebag and crawled with O'Laughlin onto the overhang. Both men leaped about six feet onto the dirt. Jake backed away from the Grande Pueblo. Stop right there! Hands in the air! shouted someone from behind. I'm a U.S. Marshal, Jake McBride. The man in a white shirt and a Marshal's badge held a foot-long colt. The beady-eyed man had dark hair, cascading mustache, and no smile on his face. I'm Hiram Kern, and I'm the Deputy Marshal here. He was just a few feet away from Jake when he began moving the blunt end of his revolver into position. Jake instantly thrust his foot into Kern's forearm. The marshal, thrown off guard, was also unprepared for Jake's fist slamming into his jaw. He flew backward and onto the ground, stunned and unmoving. From the dirt, Kern focused on Jake standing above him. Jake picked up the revolver and handed it, blunt end first to him. I never had that happen to me said Curran, taking the gun. From the rear, several men pushed someone onto the street. Jake took a few steps as three men shoved Pam Grayson forward. You should have stayed out of this, Jake, she screeched. Where's Rheingold? Nowhere where you'll find him. She was shooting at the Grande, said one of the men to Curran. What the hell are you doing back in Rhyolite City, Pam, asked Curran. Then he looked back at Jake. You're looking for one of the cowboys, McBride. I heard your story. Killed my friends and tried to steal the silver on the Overland 924. And she was on it. Our Glidden Dooley, McAllister, and the Horseman, Wheel, in Rhyolite City? Asked Kern. You're all dead, Kern. I'm here for Rheingold. The marshal turned toward Pam. Who is Rheingold, Pam? I don't know nothing. Let me be the first to tell you that you'll be up for attempted murder if you don't fess up. Well, he's left town. He left when McBride came to the mining camps. Who is he? When she did not answer, Kern walked up to her with his colt run. Won't go well for a woman in jail, Pam. She looked at Jake and then back at Kern. He's, uh, Johnny. Johnny Guns. Johnny? asked Curran, his voice strained. Johnny Guns killed McBride's people and robbed that train? Yes, sir. Who's Johnny Guns? asked Jake. Curran's eyes tightened and his voice was low and gravelly. It's my opinion, Max Soledad shares that opinion, that Johnny Guns was responsible for the death of my brother Hagen. I heard he was skunk drunk somewhere in the territory. I would have killed him myself if I could have found him. Max Soledad appeared in a long black coat. He opened the coat, revealing the coach gun. I told Johnny all I wanted from him was ten paces in the street. Johnny never took me up on it, did he, Hiram? No, sir. He's a murdering, thieving bastard, and we all want him dead, McBride. Where did he go? asked Mac as he placed the barrel of the coach gun to Pam's stomach. Tell me. North. Toward, toward Antelope Springs, she answered. Mac pulled the trigger, and she was thrown back dead on the dirt. As Jake looked away, the night at the coal train flashed into his head. A cold sweat covered his brow. She was no good, said Mac, and he started back to the Oriental. Curran moved toward his men. 
Get McBride a fresh horse. Get his weapons and get him some food. Well, what about the girl? Asked one of the men. Bury her outside of town. Kern slowly faced Jake in the cooler night air. I ain't never seen a man faster than Johnny Guns. You bring him in, dead or alive, Marshal, and I'll make sure you have a hefty reward. I don't care about no reward, Marshal. I just want justice. Chapter 26, July 13, 1882, Turkey Creek Canyon, Arizona Territory, 2.45 p.m. The heat was strong enough to fry his boots. He tucked the canteen in his saddlebag and pulled out the Rhyolite City Epitaph article that Hiram Kern had given him. Johnny's attorney, Goodrich, said although Johnny had been in the middle of the Arizona feuds, he had had enough. Johnny had a message for Marshal Kern concerning the death of his brother. Jake read the message. John wanted me to say to you that if any fighting came up between you and all, he wanted you to understand that he would have nothing to do with it. Now that he's done what he's done, said Jake out loud. He stuffed the newspaper back into his saddlebag. Jake also learned from a man outside Rhyolite City that Johnny, like Pam had said, was indeed heading to Gaileyville. The man said that in Antelope Springs, Johnny was so drunk he had trouble staying in his saddle. Johnny handed the man a bottle of whiskey too hot to drink. The man wanted Johnny to go with him to our local ranch, but Johnny continued towards Sulphur Springs on his way to Gaileyville. The plum-hued Cherokee Mountains merged with the parchy, grassy lowlands. The black steed Kern had given him slurped up the lake water as Jake filled his canteen. He led the horse away from the lake and circled back where he had left the trail. Another horse had trampled the yellow grass. Apparently the rider had no regard about being tailed. Why would Johnny worry about Jake way up here in the mountains? The lake's blue surface reflected the clouds through the oak tree cluster. Someone bent over by the water. Johnny Guns, wearing a light hat, blue shirt and vest, turned and walked around a large rock near an overhanging oak tree. Cartridge belts were looped over when his given belly. The choice he had tied ripped cloth when around his feet. Heroes and his rifle leaned against free. the oak. Jake, Jake slowly dragged his Remington from the straps and slid down the to the books. grass. He crawled away from Thanks the for horse. To my novel. With rifle drawn, Next he crouched over and book, sidestepped across the field. Then he lowered himself onto his stomach. Johnny Guns, after all the killing at Bancor Pass, was only 50 yards away near the wide oak tree. As he rocked himself so forward vivid, and kept so the rifle pointed in Johnny's direction, so he knew that, that the law required reality. him to take Johnny so back to Brinson. The Overland had reward money, and so did Kern. Jake did not care about the, the law right now. Johnny spotted murder. a bloody in gash, possibly from a fight, that traced the and area murder. between the brim of his hat and brow. To the top Jake of wondered about the odd cloth wrappings covering his feet. Johnny turned his back but remained under the tree. I'm Robert like a P. lion hunting his once prey, again to everyone, happy closer. trails. Then he you. slowly turned out and called in a booming voice. Drop your gun real slow and don't turn or I'll fill your back full of lead. Johnny slowly faced him anyway. McBride. Jake kept the Remington train on him. You're coming back to Brinson with me. I got good lawyers, Marshal. I won't go to jail. I never do. You'd just as soon let me go if you value your own life. And let you kill me like you killed the deputy marshal in Rhyolite City? I didn't do it. 
Who told you that, Kern? Don't matter. Kern's a lying bastard. And I'm glad his brother's dead. And now, you're the one who's going to die. Not this time, Johnny. Might work in Rylite City with them throwing out your charges, but not with me. Drop your gun or I'll kill you right now. I knew you was Yellow McBride. If you were a man, you would have killed me on that train. You nearly got all the silver and you murdered my friends. Now justice will be served. Johnny stood directly in front of the rock and the spreading oak. Don't tell me about friends being killed. The graves of my friends are all over Mason County, Texas. And what about Dooley? Word is that you shot him in the back in Death Valley. Jake cocked the Remington. I ain't never shot no man in the back like you did Hagen Kern in Rhyolite City. That's your specialty, Johnny. Breeze picked up for a second as Jake stepped forward. He walked until he was only 20 feet from Johnny. Johnny's blue eyes reflected neither fear or arrogance. He never smiled. What do you know about Rhyolite City? Kern and those bastards killed Curly Bill at a spring up in the Whetstone Mountains. I don't care about your shit. Shut up, McBride. If they find out you killed me, I got friends up here and in Texas who will track you down because you were the son of a bitch that murdered Johnny Guns. If you were a man, you'd shoot it out with me right now. Were you being a man when you shot that dude three years ago in the Safford Saloon? Because he wouldn't drink whiskey with you? You're a killer. You're going to die, brother. You want justice? Jake yelled. The blood surged to his face and neck. Levi Hansen wanted justice, and so did Tom Dunbar. And Jim Coltrane, you bastard. Jake threw the Remington aside and it flipped across the grass. Johnny positioned himself in front of the rock and lifted his hand behind his gun belt upside down on his waist, around his waist. Jake placed his hand near his own gun. His hand and wrist were tight and tense, and sweat rolled down his temples in the July sun. Johnny's azure eyes locked with Jake's eyes. He never flinched, and Jake did not want to risk looking at his gun hand. Johnny breathed steadily, and the gash above his left eye was visible in Jake's side vision. Johnny's dark mustache twitched. Jake reached for his gun, and it fired before he realized it. The force of the bullet threw Johnny against the tree, and he slipped against the rock. But he never moved. For over a minute, Jake stared at Johnny, his finger still on the trigger and smoke drifting up from the barrel. A stiff breeze rippled across the grass. Jake grabbed his own shoulder. Blood oozed through his fingers. He kept his hand on the wound as he sidestepped toward Johnny. Maybe the gash in Johnny's forehead had dulled his vision. Why was his holster upside down? He grabbed his Remington off the ground, but he heard a horse behind him and he remembered what Johnny had said about his friends avenging his death. He looked back to Johnny, strangely cockeyed on the rock against the tree. Then he ran across the grass to his horse. In the sizzling sun, Jake leaped into the saddle. He held the Remington under his armpit. Another horse approached from the lake as he galloped north, away from the oak tree and the fallen Johnny Guns. Chapter 27 San Francisco, California July 13, 2012, 8.55 p.m. Jake straddled his Kawasaki Z-1000 and accelerated down Van Ness Avenue. He shook his head several times. The police sirens back at the convention center grew louder. Killing guns was something he had to do. Now he was accountable. 
He shot guns in the park with no witnesses, and everyone knew he was personally going to shoot Johnny Guns dead. As he crested the hill, three police cruisers, red and blue lights flashing, approached chaotically as they blocked Terrain Street. He veered into a dim, narrow alley and navigated between the stockade fence and the apartment buildings. The sirens and lights emerged over the top of the hill. As he braked, the motorcycle tires skidded onto the grit. The bike flipped back and forth, and he tumbled over the asphalt. More lights appeared down the end of the alley near the parallel boulevard. He lay in the cold alley as the headlights advanced. His hands and face were scraped and his shoulder was swollen. The ground rumbled. He crab-walked into the darkness of an empty lot that angled upward with the hill. The brightness and the flashing police lights now enveloped the lot. Several police cars rolled off the alley and started behind him across the dirt. The megaphone sounded as if it were behind his ear. Stop where you are, McBride. There are cruisers surrounding you. The outlines of three adjacent buildings ahead were silhouetted by more headlights. Then the SWAT team rounded the corner of the forward alley. An armored vehicle, as if in a battle, crashed over the hill. Jake pivoted left but was stymied by a row of apartments bordering Van Ness Avenue. Get out! shouted someone from the SWAT team. Jake slipped on the grass as a chopper positioned itself above the lot. A bright light blinded him where he stood. Then he sprinted toward the rear of the apartments. He knew they had him in the crosshairs of their weapons and could almost feel their assault rifles on his back. The men shook the ground as they closed in on him. He heard music ahead, but the tenement was dark. Put down your weapon. I don't have a weapon. To his left, a hazy light glowed in the clapboards. The piano music grew louder. Ahead were two swinging doors of the Arroyo. Elby danced with some kind of jig on the stage. Bart Bowers sat with Judge McKenzie at a small table near the bar, but the SWAT team was only a few dozen feet behind him. He squinted forward as the automatic weapons popped and bullets ripped the clapboards. His spurs jingled and his boots creaked as he stepped inside the smoky saloon. O'Malley pounded the keys and nodded his head at Elby's antics. Jake shuffled forward a few feet. He tightened his brow and then walked briskly through the cafe doors. Orville caught sight of him and quickly placed a new clear whiskey bottle and glass on the bar. Jake, you're back in town. Jake nodded and said nothing as he carried the whiskey over the table shared by Bowers and Mackenzie. Both men stood. Oh, God damn it! What happened, Jake? Did you find Rheingold? Asked the judge. Johnny's dead, that's all I'm saying, Judge. You kill him? Asked Bowers. Jake squinted and stared for a few seconds. Are you okay, Jake? Asked Judge McKenzie. Jake slowly swung his eyes around the saloon. It's good to be home, brother. Good to be home. Not so happy a trail for Johnny Ringo, minus his boots and his horse running around his dead body. There are many theories about Ringo's death. A prominent thought states that Wyatt Earp is blamed for tracking Ringo down for the death of his brother Morgan the preceding March in a pool room. Leading the way in other theories is suicide. The positioning of Ringo's gun is suspect. To comply with Mr. Melbourne's invitation for justice, Jake, because of what the Ringo of the novel has done, shoots him dead. Plain fact is we'll never know what happened to Johnny Ringo. 
Jake is thrust back to San Francisco of the modern age, but when given the choice of staying in a time when liars were heroes and killers walked free, Jake McBride chooses to return to the simple justice of the Old West. Thanks for listening to my novel. Next week, we begin a new book where a woman has vivid dreams of the past, so vivid that it is reality. In that reality of the past is murder and the rise of one man to the top of his profession. I'll see you then for those episodes of The Butterfly in the Deadly Storm. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and once again to everyone, happy trails to you. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.